0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's Claire Nichols here with a brand new episode of The Book Show and with three wonderful new books to share. Later, you're going to hear from a Booker shortlisted writer and a British TV host turned crime novelist. But first, an Australian author and an epic story of family, ancestral spirits and a river.
1: Yeah, yeah. river waits I look forward to the river running again Well, I look forward to the river running again yeah, yeah.
0: That's The Stiff Gims with River Song. And there are two singers in The Stiff Gims. One of them is Nadi Simpson. She's a performer, a storyteller, and now a novelist. Her debut novel is called Song of the Crocodile and this is a multi-generational epic about the Billy Mill family, an Aboriginal family who live in the so-called campgrounds down by the river on the outskirts of a fictional Australian town. This story begins in 1959 and we follow the family through their joys and their sorrows while all the while ancestral spirits look down on them from a big star in the sky. This book is life-affirming and heartbreaking in equal measure and I'm so pleased that Nadi Simpson is here with me via Skype to talk about it. Nadi, welcome to the book show. Thank you very much. Ah, so take me to this
1: place, Darnmore. Where is this place? What is this place? It's a long way away from anywhere. I think Darnmore's problem is that it's so isolated that it's just sort of a world and a law unto itself. And, I I mean, I I wonder what happens when you feel so disconnected from uh, a landscape or an environment or, you know, I I think Darnmore suffers a bit from being the only thing around in miles and... You know, there's this sort of narrative of the town springing out of harshness and and diversity, uh, and almost a real a battle with nature for its own existence. And I think sometimes that that kind of informs the way people get around in Darnmore. That everything is a struggle and everything is is a difficulty and and that sort of permeates the relationships and the ways that people interact with each other.
0: You do something really clever at the start of the book where you place Darnmore in the natural landscape but then you take us to the town itself and this is, of course, a town of, you know, very neat fibro houses, these wilting rose bushes, citrus trees, concrete paths. So we're immediately feeling the tension between the the natural Australian landscape and this town that's been kind of plonked into the middle of it. You know,
1: it's interesting that, the story of the kind of what's the emergence of concrete in the middle of red dust. One side of that story is that there is this language of a triumph really over the harshness of a place and the isolation of a place that you can kind of almost produce a carbon copy of what a town or a home looks like everywhere else. So there is this sort of um, struggle, I think, in building those things, but it's this forever lying tension in its suitability in the larger kind of context of of the place I'm in. Mean, there's beautiful rivers near the town, yet the town's going to build a, a a levee to keep that water out, a natural floodplain. So you know, this is something that's sort of recognisable, I think, in a lot of Australian country towns' this story of creating something from dust, but does that something suit? Mm. And as you
0: say, uh, if we head out of town, we head down the road past the tip, we come to the river and that's where the campgrounds are. What's life like at the campgrounds?
1: The campgrounds, are, are, I have to admit, my father lived in a place very similar to this. When it, he's one of 11 and we hear the stories of Monkeela Bend where they live just outside of um, Walgate. And families of six or seven families living on the river's edge, um, not allowed to be in town, but making a life on the riverbank. And we hear this as Simpsons and think, you know, these fellas talk a bit like they're, you know, living in Buckingham Palace, they've got everything they need, yet they had nothing, you know. And so the campgrounds really was a way for me to understand that time of history in my own family where. We had nothing but they were almost at their happiest and and what the campgrounds has, I think that maybe the town doesn't, is a relationship and a connection and a reliance on the person next to you for your success and the people are the resource out at the campgrounds whereas in town the resources are built and made and accumulated things. So the joy, I think, you know, happy things happen along the river. Hard things happen along rivers too. But um, that big, flowing boss um, can sustain you in ways that are very meaningful and very um, important.
0: This place where your dad grew up, did you get to spend time there, Nadia?
1: Oh, We always used to go up, I was born in Sydney and we, every time school holidays pack the car up we go and we'd spend all our school holidays, incredibly hot summers and, and drizzly kind of coldish winters in Walgett and Lightning Ridge out of um, Opal Fields at um, Grawen. And when you're that far inland, you know, very near the Queensland border, you start to understand and recognise space in a very different way and the, the smallest blushes of nature are huge events like New Year's Eve you know fireworks going <laughs> off everywhere when those flowers come in it's a bush New Year's Eve so those tiny changes in this sort of vast landscape are incredibly important and I really I'm very grateful that I have you know, all the wonderful joys of a busy city life. And also that deep kind of thoughtful understanding of the small, intricate uh, movements of of a vast sort of landscape.
0: You were speaking earlier about being a bit confused about why your dad and his family liked life there so much. And I'm really interested in your perspective on this, Nadi, because it must be a place of conflict. It's a place where family was so happy, but it's also a place where family were forced to be. I mean, it, how do you how do you reconcile that in your head?
1: I think I've just got to sort of tell myself to get over myself because while that time is important in the makeup of who I am, it does doesn't belong to me. And so, you know, with my big city ideas, I can look and say, you know, you fellas didn't even have, you didn't even know what electricity was until you're in your 40s you know that's not respectful of the experience of um, my grandmother and my father and his brothers and sisters and i think what i learnt during the writing of this book was Uh, You know, you can yearn for things, but don't try and make it your story. Allow it to be the experience of someone else and the way that you connect to it is through the relationship you have with the people who are there. So it's really been a, a, a steep learning curve for me to want something, to want to understand something, but to allow... The understanding of it to belong to someone else, if if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's quite a revelation to have in the creation of a book. That's huge. <laughs> it was hard, I'll tell you, but you know, also because this thing is so, it's such a rich part of who we are. Uh, you know, me and my cousins, and my cousins' cousins are having kids, and they, this time out at Monkilla Bend is um, transformational in how we move in the world and instead of wanting things for ourselves or wanting things to be different, I think allowing the experience of our our family to live in their own reality, that's that's the important thing because in that way you get the person as well as the place, not just the place.
0: So how much has your own family found their way into Song of the Crocodile, Nadi?
1: <laughs> um when I think about, you know, when I wonder actually, I wonder where it all came from, I think that it's a beautiful mixture of recognisable things but not people that you can pinpoint. I mean, there are, it's it's sort of almost me dreaming and remembering and embellishing my Feeling as a kid, being amongst all my cousins, all my um, aunties and uncles, all our extended family, being on the different rivers, it was—I was able to make just as the campgrounds were for Dad, I suppose—the perfect version of my understanding of that place. So, you know, I must say, my our eldest auntie, Auntie Georgina, she's the oldest out of the eleven. She did rub butter on her face one day uh, beside a big campfire and we all thought she was doing a a traditional ceremony because she was hamming it up, you know, being real sort of solemn about it and she gathered us all around and watched, made us watch as she rub margarine in her face and we thought, oh, this must be, you know, really important. She said it's a cleansing ceremony and then just put her face to the fire and let all the margarine um, roll off her face and just said it's a really good facial cleanser. And so she... uh, (laughs) She had us all go in there for a while. That thing actually happened. <laughs> but there, everybody's a mixture of wonderful, ridiculous, difficult things like that.
0: Yeah, this book is full of just absolutely beautiful characters and I'd love to talk about a few of them, Nadi Simpson. When the book starts, Celie and Tom Billy Mill are expecting their first child and Millie is born in pretty remarkable circumstances. What happens when she is born?
1: rains and storms and because it's floodplain, you know, it's excessive and it is, it's a big deal. And so Millie is born during this storm and just before she's born, her father dies, the moments before she's born, her father dies. And during the storm, the lightning hits the iron ridge where that's connected out to the river and changes the colour of her eyes. Uh, which is a way of that place showing that this person, this baby, is important in the story of that place. But also it was a kindness sort of done by the storm so that people wouldn't look at Millie and see her father's eyes and think of what they'd lost. They'd look at this beautiful new baby and think how extraordinary she is. So um, when the storm comes, big things happen on the floodplain, yeah.
0: Yeah, and there is an incredible strength to Millie, to Celie and to mum, Margaret, these three generations of wonderful women. Tell me about the business
1: that Celie starts because this is pretty cool. <laughs> well, she realises very quickly that she's going to have to, you know, find a way to support actually not just her and a new little baby but those people that she's connected to. And um, she's asked to go into town, which is an unusual thing for a woman of Celie's age, and she she gets a job doing the laundry at the mayor's house, and through her kind of skirting around the outskirts of town, she realises that there's a spare shed out in a back block near the river, um, and she formulates a plan to start a laundry, Uh, and it kind of is almost the perfect thing because it's what she's good at. It's also what people in town don't want to do. They don't want to muck around, you know, washing their clothes. It's much easier to have somebody else worry about that. So Sealy kind of starts a laundromat, I guess, called the Blue Shed, and within that she sort of brings in a lot of the campground families and women to work and not just work but also men to congregate. It's almost like the first place that campgrounds people have where they can feel safe. Um, within the kind of the outskirts of town. So, you know, it's a pretty amazing feat, very brave. And I think she sort of got a little bit of that from watching her husband take on the powers that be. It also strikes me as pretty important
0: because it gives her a chance to earn her own money and actually have a bit of financial control, which would Mm. have been so difficult at that time.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, all the men are off. Uh, working on stations, or you know, fencing, or the work for the families at the time was outside of town, away from family, and so women had to really, you know, bring up family and look after community, and they needed a they needed a bit of financial impetus to be able to support each other. And this is a perfect sort of response of Sealys' it's, it's not just serving our own family's need, that there's a beautiful way that it, it integrates into the needs of the community.
0: That story is wonderful, but there is a lot of great tragedy in this book. I don't want to spoil any of that, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of the tragedy in this book comes down to this great inequality between the white inhabitants of Darnmore and the Aboriginal people. And I wanted to ask you, Nadi, How much of this book was written in an anger at the injustice of all of that?
1: I think that um, for me, when I first started, uh, what I wanted to explore, not answer, but I really wanted to ask on a page and get people that may be outside of this experience to really engage in is what effect does um, sort of hit after hit after hit, after trauma, after hurt, after failure have on the people who kind of assume that stuff. I really wanted to not be angry and n- have no blame, but for somehow somehow to open a sort of a pathway, I guess, to a sympathy or an empathy in the humanity of what suffering can does to people and in an aboriginal context what that does to generations of people how how are people able to manage to carry that and still continue that was something that i really wanted to try and get across um to all readers you know sitting with some kind of understanding of um where does that go what what does a body need to release that and and how can we understand actions today with this kind of historical, rolling historical injustice that actually, sometimes or most times, is is never accounted for? I think that's an incredibly difficult burden for people to carry, and that's something that I wanted to find a way to share in a way. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think you certainly do that very well. Uh, I mentioned earlier that there's a spiritual element to "Song of the Crocodile" too. Uh, Perhaps you can tell me, Nadi, the story of Jakey Bird.
1: Well, when I first started writing, because you know I write three minute songs, I thought, well, I'm going to have to go to book. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask me about the the logic jump between there and here, but I thought, how can I actually do this? What is a way that I can start? And Jackie Bird was the first character that came to me. He's a song man. In the book, he's the son of a star. Um, but that star is also a brolga. And the brolga in Yulroy sort of worldview is um, the woman who oversees all the songs and dances and ceremonies that happen. So Jackie Bird is is the son of this bird star. And he soaks up knowledge in, you know, in the sky and he comes down and leads this great song to draw out the crocodile. And as a character or as a device even maybe, that's the way I could create a landscape that was familiar to me. I know about song. Um, so I'll try writing about song, um, not just singing. And so he he for me was like a, a conduit in changing over in creative artistic mediums he's very important to the story but he's very important to me and the way that you know the way that we think it's the fellas that aren't here that have the most say in your life (laughs) more so than the ones that you you know live next door to where I think I definitely love to have a life where I believe well, all the love from the people that I've come from still resonates and is an active um, element in, in my life today.
0: So, these stories of, say, Jackie Bird, these are stories of your own creation, Nadi?
1: Yeah, I made all them up. But the one thing, the Muradig in the Malar, the star where they're all sitting, that is actually a, a Ulroy. well, what is it, a, a astronomical? Knowledge, Muradi Malar is the name that we have for the um, morning star, um, and also Venus. And he is a old man that's laughing at a woman who's bent over to pick something up, who's got a, a big bum, and that's why he twinkles. So Muradi Malar, the star, is part of our cosmology, Ullaroy cosmology. But all the characters that are in and around uh, the star in the book are sort of out of my imagination.
0: And you mentioned the crocodile. Uh, this is Garia. Uh, tell mm. me about Garia because I'm
1: terrified.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, Garia is is an important creator being in Yuliroi worldview. Um, two, there were two crocodiles that created a really important ceremony site out near, just past Walgut called Naran Lakes. Um, and they had a battle with the creator in our, in our song line, he battled with the creator. He, ate, he swallowed the creator's wife and they had a big battle and he, as they fought, the tale made Narren Lakes, and um, which is a really important site that we're strongly connected to today. So Garia is also one of those kind of beings that is otherworldly where he exists in our real world and also in the world of the book, yeah. I was chatting to
0: someone last night about crocodiles and we agreed that of everything that exists in the world today, they're more, probably the most terrifying
1: <laughs> animal there oh, is. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that freaks me out is that they stalk you and they watch you and they they can, you know, they know your movements as a human. <laughs> there aren't many things that can sort of scare you in that way, but um, they're very powerful Awesome or inspiring creatures, actually, and we have opalised um, crocodile teeth out in the opal fields at the Grawan and Cookern Lakes, and so we have these dreaming stories about crocodile. We also have archaeological evidence of of um, crocodiles in our area when when we had the Great Inland Sea, but long, long time ago.
0: Wow. So, yes, there is a a crocodile that kind of stalks this story, which is pretty terrifying. Uh, But I did want to acknowledge, Nadi, um, you know, you've been sharing some words from Aboriginal language there and they are scattered through this book as well. How important was that for you?
1: The language um, for me, it's been a really beautiful, wonderful teacher for me. And, you know, I'm at an age where I probably... Well, actually, 20 years ago, I thought I I knew all I needed to know. (laughs) But language is this beautiful, um, you're in this relationship with language where you're always learning and you're you're always in the state of actually of unknowing, which I really love. Um, So language was important for me to have a relationship with the language I used um, in the book. So there are words that Ullaroy people use in our regular kind of um, day-to-day um, interactions. There's also anglicised Ullaroy words, so Moor, the name of the town, is a, a word that I anglicised from a Ullaroy wo- word, Moor, which means graveyard. And then there are instances of me playing with our language. So there's a character in the book, she's eight, nine, Ten-year-old girl, and her name is Malawil Dul Moranga, and I made her word up of um, Uluru kind of suffixes and words. Malawil is shadow, Dul means little, Moran is our word for the darkest point before dawn, and Ga is a place a suffix um, placement. So the littlest shadow at the darkest point before dawn. I wanted to use language in that way and to play with Ullaroy language and hopefully to share the beauty of what it is um, on the page. Yeah, What I
0: like about it is that you don't pander to the reader either. You're not putting translations in the book. You're just letting the language sit there amongst the text and let us... Take in its meaning from reading the words around it, um, which is similar to what Melissa Lukashenko did in Too Much Lip as well. I mean, mm. is this important to just make this a natural part without it over-explaining
1: it? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I've done it myself where, um, you know, there's something about letting go, I think, when you read or you engage with text that can be unfamiliar, that if, you know, you're always seeking to translate into your own kind of knowledge system. I I completely understand that. But um, if you let go of the need to do that, you can find alternate ways of understanding. So uh, it was really important for me to not have language as a barrier to people's engagement with the story, uh, but to have it as something that uh, adds kind of a resonance or of or vibration to the story that means that you're actually much closer to the world within the pages than um, uh, or getting as close as you can to the world on the page. Yeah,
0: yeah, it, it certainly did that for me. Uh, Nadi, your book is called Song
1: of the Crocodile. It's published by Hachette. It's been so wonderful to meet you today. Thank you so much. It's a huge honour for me to talk to you and because I listen to the podcast all the time I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan so I sort of got to pinch myself that I'm yarning to you now ah, the feeling <laughs> is mutual that is <laughs> that is the wonderful
0: Nadi Simpson via Skype and let's take this out with some more music from the stiff gins This is The Book Show, where we are working our way through this year's Booker Prize shortlist. The winner will be announced on the 19th of November, so we've got just a couple of authors left to meet before then. Today, you're about to hear from Avni Doshi. She's an Indian-American writer now based in Dubai. Her shortlisted novel is, yep, another debut. It's called Burnt Sugar, and it's set in Pune, India. It's about a toxic relationship between a mother and a daughter. And here's Avni with Sarah Lestrange.
2: Avni, congratulations on being shortlisted for The Booker.
3: Thank you so much. It's been a dream come true. I can
2: only imagine. Now, your novel has one of the best first lines I've come across. This is it. I would be lying if I said my mother's misery has never given me pleasure. This sentence really sets the tone, Avni. The book's about Antara and her mother. How would you describe them and their relationship?
3: Well, Antara is um, a young woman and she... um, has always had a difficult relationship with her mother and now as her mother is aging and has been diagnosed with alzheimer's disease she is trying to find her way around that new relationship and potentially uh, consider how to look after a person who never really looked after her so um, there's a lot of resentment in a sense between uh, the two characters but for me, it was um, also about writing a relationship that could contain the contradictions of of hatred, but also a kind of enduring uh, love that exists between mother and child.
2: And do you think that's important to talk about the ambivalence of motherhood openly?
3: I think it's really important. You know, I think... Um, the relationship between mother and child is a human relationship like any other, and it's complicated and imperfect. And I think we, um, when we're parents, we can pass our traumas and our, um, you know, issues down to our children. And I think these relationships are complicated. And I I was interested in drawing those complexities up to the surface, you know, rather than um, sweeping them under the rug.
2: And the fact that the mother has Alzheimer's just complicates that just that little bit more. Uh, So how is memory a theme in this novel? It's a really big theme.
3: Memory has always been really interesting to me. I worked as a curator um, in the art world in India for a while. And even in the shows I curated, I thought a lot about memory um, as a kind of um, concept, which, you know, the shows were organized around. And I continued to think about it even as I started writing fiction. Um, In earlier drafts of the novel, Alzheimer's disease didn't play a central role, even though memory would come up again and again. But my grandmother was actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I think it's now four years ago. And so when I first heard about her diagnosis, I was completely distraught. I, I didn't really know anything about the illness. And so I went... I kind of dove headfirst into researching it. I looked at every different modality I could. Um, I dug up every paper I could. Every, I looked in every scientific journal to try and understand, you know, what this was. I was sort of determined to cure her. And I think that's a sort of parallel that exists uh, between me and the narrator. You know, in, in the novel, the narrator uses her artwork. She's an artist, And she uses her artwork to understand uh, her mother's condition. And for me, I I sort of used the novel itself, the writing of the novel itself, to think around uh, my own grandmother's illness.
2: Now, Avni, you grew up in America, in New Jersey, to Indian parents, and you've worked in India and you're based in Dubai. I'm curious why you chose to set it in India.
3: Um, India has always been... Really important to me growing up, I really romanticized India. and I think it was only when I actually lived there myself that I felt I began to understand a bit more about what the place is. Um, and it's it's a remarkable country. It's a difficult and troubled country as well. And um it was just it's it's always been fascinating to me. And even though I guess I'm American, um, India has, felt like, like home in a way as much as America has. And so for me, it was really natural um, to write about India, I guess.
2: And what does it mean for your career to be on the book shortlist? What does it mean to you? This is your debut novel.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's just been tremendous. This has been such a difficult year for everyone, you know, I think for the entire world um, with COVID and with you know, just being in isolation, not being able to interact. And I think that so many amazing books have come out this year and they're being, they've kind of been missed because it's difficult to, you know, interact with your readers. And I just feel so, so lucky that, um, you know, the Booker uh, nomination has given me that opportunity where I can reach more readers. And you know it's it's no small thing for a debut novelist mm-hmm. that's for sure. Um, I, I hope that I can you know do do it some justice in the future um, by continuing to write. What was
2: your path to becoming a writer?
3: I never studied writing, so i I you know, studied art history. That was my passion. And I did my undergraduate in that. And then I went on to do my master's as well. But I always had a love for fiction. Um, I always read tons of fiction, mostly classics until I was in my 20s. And then I sort of discovered contemporary fiction. I didn't really know it existed. Um, And then I began writing on the side in secret. I was sort of ashamed of it. I didn't think it was something that people really did. You know, to me, it was just sort of out of this world. Um, And then I uh, saw there was a literary prize. A friend posted something on Facebook and it was run by an agency based out of the UK, a literary agency. And so I just submitted my manuscript. It was for unpublished manuscripts. And I ended up winning. And that was really kind of the beginning of something remarkable because that led me to getting um, a fellowship at the University of East Anglia. And that was really the first time that I got to sit in on writing classes, on workshops. I sat in on some fascinating PhD seminars. Um, And I really got to learn a little bit about the craft of writing fiction. I had no idea about it until that point. So I think I came to it quite late compared to a lot of writers.
2: Well, good luck with the booker and thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much.
3: Avni Doshi there with
0: Sarah Lestrange. Burnt Sugar is published by Hamish Hamilton. And if you've missed any of the booker interviews, you can find them all right now on the book show website. In luxury retirement village in rural England, an unusual club meets once a week. They're called the Thursday Murder Club, and they love to pore over unsolved crimes, coming up with their own theories on who done it. Now, when a real-life murder happens in their community, of course, this quartet of crime-solving retirees is on the case. And this is the setup for The Thursday Murder Club, a charming debut crime novel by Richard Osman. Now, you've probably seen Richard before. He's had a very long career on British TV. Uh, He actually created the show Pointless, which he also hosts in the UK. And Richard Osman joins me now via Skype. Richard, welcome.
4: Hello, Claire. How are you?
0: I am very well, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm going to be a bit rude to start though, Richard, because I know. <laughs> okay. I know there are some people who hear the words "celebrity fiction" and get nervous mm. because there have been some real yeah. doozies over the years. So, <laughs> I guess I'm yeah. going to ask why we should take you seriously, Richard.
4: Do you know what? That's not a real question at all. It's, it's it's a question I asked myself all the way through. When I started writing this, I've always been a writer is, is is the first thing, long before I was a TV presenter. But when I started writing, I did it entirely in secret because genuinely I agree with you. The world does not need another novel written by a television presenter. That's for sure. So I thought I wanted to write it for myself. And I thought, look, when I finish it, I'm going to show it to somebody who really knows what they're talking about, someone I trust, and say to them, look, I know you can sell this book in the UK because I'm on telly. But I need you to tell me, if this just landed on your submission pile from someone you haven't heard of, would you buy it? Uh, and I showed it to an agent, and she just said, look, genuinely, I guarantee you, this is a proper book. So I thought, okay. But then I thought, I thought, well, of course she would say that, wouldn't she? Because <laughs> she wants to represent me in all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, we sold it in the UK, and I was still nervous. But then, very, very quickly, we sold it in the States, and we sold it in Italy and france and germany and russia and china and none of these people have the first clue who i am i mean they literally don't know so all they've done is read the book loved the book loved the characters loved the warmth of the thing and decided to buy it and that's when i calmed down uh and i had the answer to the question you just asked which is is this just another book by a celebrity and i i think it appears uh that it's not it appears that it's actually like an actual book written by like an actual human being, which is all I've ever wanted to be. An
0: actual human being. Uh, was there yeah, an a, was, actual human being. Do you remember getting that feedback? Was there a thrill in knowing that you'd written something that worked?
4: Yeah, there really was. And listen, there have be lots of people listening who've, who've, who've written stuff or started writing stuff. And as I say, I, I wrote it without showing it to anybody. And all the way through, you are thinking, hold on, is this terrible? So that feedback to me was was. An absolute treat because, you know, I'd set out to do it. And as you say, look, I've had a long career doing something else. Uh, and I set out to do it really in, in, in more in hope than expectation. And to have the feedback I've had and have the sales we've had over here uh, and the reaction worldwide has been, honestly, I've, I've never been more thrilled professionally with anything I've ever done.
0: Oh, that's lovely. So in your book, Richard, we meet this group of seniors Mm. and they're obsessed with murder, um, which sounds strange, but it's not really these days. When you think about how many people listen to true crime podcasts, uh, what do you think it is that fascinates us about gore, about mystery?
4: It's such a good question because we are all obsessed with murder. I mean, it's genuinely the case. Or you know what? Enough people are obsessed with murder. That, you know, crime fiction is booming and there are, you know, crime podcasts and all that kind of stuff. I think that we live in very uncertain times, that's for sure. Uh, And certainly this year, it's been a very, very uh, uncertain year. And I think when we read about crime, we sort of know that it's going to get sorted out uh, and that someone's going to get their just desserts. And, you know, crime fiction and true crime, you know, is that we can read about awful things happening, but... We know there's going to be a conclusion. We know we're going to get some closure. Uh, and I think when we live in a world of uncertainty, which we do at the moment domestically and, and you know, um, globally, I think it's really, really reassuring that you're going to be given a series of knots, but at some point someone's going to untie them and say, it's all OK in the end.
0: Hmm. Where did your fixation or your interest come from?
4: My grandfather was a police officer. Uh, for many, many years on the south coast of England in Brighton and, and all along the coast from there. And as anyone who lives in coastal communities knows, there's a lot of crime coastal communities it's sort of they're beautiful and you know bucolic and all of that stuff but you know there's always an underbelly and you know i would i would listen to his stories and you know hear about the things that he was doing and it always fascinated me and i always wanted to be um, uh, a police officer and be a detective and 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 what have you and you know i'd always read about it always been fascinated with it so i wouldn't have written a novel that wasn't a crime novel for example i know I, i i don't have anything to tell the world particularly you know i have a standpoints but is I, I don't have any grand theories to expand but I do read a huge amount of crime fiction always have done and true crime and I read you know all that kind of stuff and all those podcasts and all the Netflix series uh, and so to write a crime book to me sort of comes very naturally because I, I think about crime a lot without I should add ever committing any.
0: <laughs> that is that is good to know. um You know yeah. when I was preparing for this interview um, of course I googled you Richard and um mm. you know Google brings up the common questions that people ask associated with your name. Mm. And I don't know if you know what the top three are, but they are, is Richard Richard Osman married? Who is Richard Osman's brother? And the third question, and the one I wanted to focus on is, is Richard Osman clever? That is the third question, most common question people ask about you. Are you clever, Richard Osman?
4: Uh, That is a really good question. I think because I present quiz shows over here, I do a couple of quiz shows that are on every day, Uh, And so people think that I am clever. They think I'm good at quizzes. But, but, you know, I wear an earpiece on those shows. I think I'm a better writer than I am a clever human being. Uh, There's people I know in my life who are professors and this, that, the other, who are much, much cleverer than me. And we live in a world where we've sort of fallen out of love with people being experts. Everyone thinks they're an expert on everything these days. Uh, And I have a very keen sense of how stupid I am (laughs) in almost all areas. So I'm good in a quiz. But no. I'm not clever. I couldn't build you a bridge. Uh, there's very, very few practical things that I am any good at, and I think I'm a better writer and a funnier person than I am a, a clever person. But um, we'll keep that to ourselves, shall we? Because otherwise, I'll lose all of my jobs.
0: Yeah, you, me, and the audience of the book show. Uh, what led you to a what led you yeah, to a career yeah, in yeah. television?
4: I grew up watching it, you know, and I'm, I'm I'm a great believer in do what you love. And literally, I came out of university and I didn't know anyone or anything. I'm not from a posh family or anything like that, so. Didn't really know what jobs were available. And I literally saw a job in the newspaper saying that research is needed for a television program, very obscure satellite one. Uh, Went for the interview, got the job. And on the first day there, I just thought, well, I've been preparing this for my entire life. You know, from the age of five, I would sit dead in front of the telly and just watch all of it. All day, you know, I loved it, uh, and so from yeah day one, I thought, well, this is the perfect job for me, and I've I've been there ever since. You know, I don't think I've had a day out of work since since then, and I've absolutely loved it. And it's only now, funnily enough, this is my first kind of non-television career, you know, uh, writing, but it feels like it feels like the same business in in lots of ways. How? Well, because it's about creativity, it's about selling, it's about understanding what people like, what people, you know, my job mainly has been. Uh, I wonder what people want to watch. How do I package that up in a way that is going to be as, as entertaining as possible? And, you know, if I'm doing a quiz that contains as much jeopardy as possible, but also at the end of it leaves you feeling better about yourself. You know, that's how I've always felt about TV. And writing the book, I mean, not consciously, but I'm driven by the same things, which is I want to write a book that leads you to a conclusion. So you don't know what's going to happen. That's the beauty of it. But on the way... I just want to be as entertaining as possible. You know, I want you to laugh. I want you to cry. Uh, I want you to enjoy it. I want you to feel smart. I want you to be hoodwinked. Um, you know, I want there to be red herrings. But it's all about, like on telly, it's all about just, I don't want to give you any reason to switch off. You know, I just want you to be really happy sitting there, either watching telly or reading a book and just thinking, "Yep, yeah, I'm really, really glad be in, in in the company of this uh, of, of this guy that's uh, that's where it's similar i think
0: yeah you're kind of bringing a bit of showbiz nows to the novel which is a smart idea really
4: well, again, it's it's completely subconscious. It's just how I've always been. I love being in the mainstream. That's how I grew up, you know, and I lo- if I've got something I'm proud of, and I'm really proud of this book, I want as many people mm-hmm. as possible to enjoy it. But having written it, the other interesting thing is, and you talk to authors all the time, so I'd love to hear your view on this, is to me, so much of my career is creative because you're creating the shows and you're making them as well as possible, but it's also a sales job. You know, you're um, making sure as many people as possible want to watch your show. You're making sure people are aware of it. You keep making little tweaks to make it better. And I've felt that in books as soon as it was finished and we signed the deal. I said to the publishers, look, I'll sell this door to door. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm proud of it and I want as many people as possible to enjoy it. And it feels like publishing maybe is not set up for that quite as much as other industries. Sometimes authors write a book and just let it go out there and fend for itself. Do you? Is that something you've come across?
0: I have to say it's quite refreshing listening to you talk about selling a book because mm. I guess a lot of authors, I don't know, it, it, it seems like almost a noble pursuit writing a book. You know, you, you create yes. a book and you put it yeah. out into the world and – it's about putting those ideas out there, and I have to say, Richard, I'm finding mm, it quite refresh. Exactly, I'm finding it quite refreshing <laughs> to hear you be so upfront about making it appealing, and making it, you know, go as far as it can. Um, shall we talk a little bit about the plot of the book, Richard Osman? Um, so the quartet mm. of seniors run the Thursday Murder Club of the title. Uh, what is the club all about?
4: So the club is about, funnily enough, it's based on a real place that I went a couple of years ago. A friend of mine's mum lives in a retirement community, right in the heart of uh, the English countryside. And when I was there, and all crime and thriller writers will understand why this was important. When I was there, I looked down at my phone and I had no reception. And every crime and thriller writer knows that's the kind of golden thing for any crime novel these days. is somewhere where you can't use a mobile phone because mobile phones ruin almost any plot. So when I looked down at that, I looked around me at this beautiful place and down at my phone, I thought, wow, this would be an amazing place to set a murder. And then as I got talking to the people who live there, you have to be over 70. And they're all having lunch pretty early. They've all started drinking. Uh, you know, they've all got a mischievous glint in their eye. And I thought, well, who better to solve a murder than this lot, you know, with the experience that they have? And then on the notice board, on the notice boards outside one of the restaurants, there's like um, Tuesday French Club and Wednesday Knitting Club. And that the idea of Thursday Murder Club came to me, which is just four people who had really interesting careers, just are fascinated with murder. And, you know, th- that's, that's the thing they want to look into every Thursday. You know, that's their thing. And then the second a murder happens, of course, they go, well, surely we're the people to try and solve this. And the book really centers around there's a murder in the community. And then, of course, the question is, how do four people in their 70s solve a murder when they've got no access to police records, they've got no access to, um, you know, suspects, anything like that, forensics, all of that. And so the story of the book is how the four of them, because they're in their 70s and they're underestimated and overlooked and everyone thinks they're harmless, how they manage to uh, manipulate everybody involved in the investigation into letting them kind of right into the heart of it. And, you know, that's the beauty of it really is you know we tend to think of people in their 70s as uh, you know think, oh yes harmless out of the way and the the lovely thing about this book is these four people are the heroes and they're the smartest people in the book by a million miles and they use their former careers so one of them was a nurse one was a psychiatrist one was a, a trades union official a labor activist and one of them elizabeth we never quite know what it is that she did but she's clearly a spy <laughs>
0: though she'll never uh, tell and so
4: she has contacts that. that she, Though she'll never do, although she does go on about it a bit uh and so it's it's just the way that they manage to kind of get everybody on side you know there's bits where they, they do pretty bad things it sounds quite a cozy setup this i understand that and you know there's coziness about it but there's also non-coziness they do do bad things they do break the law uh and you know the the, the police who are involved they do say look at some point I'm going to have to arrest you. And they go, of course you're not going to arrest us. We're 75. You're not going to arrest a 75-year-old woman, take her down to the police station, put her in a cell. You're not going to put her in court the next morning. I'll just pretend the judge is my son-in-law and, you know, I've lost my mind. You're not going to. So why don't you just sit down, have a nice cup of tea, and let's talk a bit more about the investigation. And they sort of they just steamroll everybody, which is lovely.
0: Yeah, and they're not adverse to feeding the coppers cakes full of alcohol to help loosen them up and get them talking. <laughs>
4: Exactly that. I mean, my view. People say, "How do you get inside the head of a, someone who's 75?" The good news is, and you'll know this, we're already inside that head. You know, our heads aren't going to change any time. You know, our 25-year-old self and 55-year-old self and 75-year-old self are all the same. But when you're 75, there's lots of downsides in your own grief, a lot and loss, and you know, physical um, incapabilities. incapacities. But you have such life experience, and you've dealt with every type of person you've seen it all before and so yeah they will stop at nothing to get the things that uh that they want which is such a lovely um thing to be able to play with as a writer and they're four such different characters and they're four such unlikely friends that one of them will always have the solution to what they need you know whatever angle you're coming from uh one of them will do it and it's lovely just to have that sense of a rebirth in your 70s that sense of on oh, new momentum, new friends, and all of that is, is again, something that, that people are really responding to in the book.
0: Yeah, it was a lovely celebration of the older community. I noticed you dedicated the book to mm. your mum. Is it a, a celebration of your family too?
4: Yeah, it really, you know, it, it genuinely is. My family, we're a big sort of working-class family from from the South Coast, and my family's full of, especially women, but very strong, very, very, very tough people, but who are very kind, so we'll use their toughness for good you know so no, non-sentimental you know uh, but if you're in trouble we'll help you out but at the same time you know we'll bend the rules if they need to you know my grandfather if you were a police officer in the 60s and 70s and 80s you know you you bent a lot of rules uh, the only time my grandfather ever turned down a direct order was when they asked him to police the minor strike in the uk and he said i'm not going up and policing that strike that's working. that's a working man and that's his business and i'm not going up there so he didn't get promoted quite as far as he should have done, uh, my granddad. But that's the sort of person that he was: tough, but also with a with a, with a real sense of justice. And that I hope comes all the way through the book. Uh, you know, kindness, friendship, t- non sentimentality, but but a kind of a kind of warmth and, a, and and a belief in our fellow human beings, which is severely lacking in the last few years. I think,
0: mm. Richard, uh, as I was reading your book, I, I was imagining the movie or the tv show i could see judy dench Mm. playing elizabeth the maybe spy can you can you tell me have you sold the screen rights for this one
4: yeah we sold that that, that, that that's another thing you know we started talking about um you know oh god you're just a tv presenter about book and another lovely thing right at the beginning is we sold the movie rights to spielberg like really really early on when he read it i know And he has never seen any of my shows. Uh, So that's when I thought, oh, okay, there's something in this story and in this setting and in these characters because he he knows that stuff, right? You know, he's a a pretty good judge of a story, I would think. And everybody who reads it, everyone, well, they they say two things. Firstly, can I live in this retirement community because it sounds idyllic? And the other thing is they cast it in their head. Everybody says, "Oh, that's judy Dench. That should be Dame Maggie Smith. You know, that's Art Malik. That's you know, everybody. Uh, you know, has their view on who should um, who, who should play the characters, other than me. Because to me, I've got that. You can tell I'm a real writer now because I'm like, but these characters are mm. real. There's no, I, I can't imagine anybody playing them. You know, they're they're so real to me. But yeah, so hopefully, I mean, listen, if anyone's ever allowed to make a film again, um, hopefully it should be should be on screen sometime in the next um, couple of years, which would be lovely. I'd love that."
0: And until then, you can read the book. It's called The Thursday Murder Club and it's published by Viking. Richard Osman, it's been a real pleasure to meet you today.
4: Oh, thank you, Claire. And I really, one of the absolute key things is, you know, obviously no one's allowed to get on a plane at the moment, but uh, I love Australia. I've got Australian relatives and I cannot wait to come over. I'm going to do a whole series of these books. There's four four in the pipeline now. And the second I can come over and see everybody and do sort of readings and that sort of thing, um, I would absolutely love to. So um, please bear with me while well, I'm not allowed on a plane. But the moment I am, I should be I should be right over.
0: We'll see you then. And in the meantime, you can watch uh, Richard on your TV. He's uh, participating in a show called Taskmaster that I love. That's on SBS on Mondays right now, Richard's season. Um, this is the book show. I
3: can't decide whether you should live or die. Oh, you probably never. Please don't hang your head and cry. No why.
0: That's the book show for another week. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Claire Nichols and this is The Scissor Sisters. Bye. Oh, I could throw you
3: in the lake. I'll feed you poison birthday cake. I won't deny I'm gonna miss you when you're gone. Oh, I could bury you alive. But you might crawl out with a knife and kill me when I'm sleeping. That's why I can't decide whether you should live or die. Oh, you'll probably go to heaven. Don't hang your head and cry. No wonder why. my heart feels
1: dead inside. It's cold and hard and, Lock the doors and the You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC
3: podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.